Solving the human challenges of space travel. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Space travel affects our bodies in so many different ways. But for the longest time, researchers only had access to physiological data from some super healthy astronauts. Now, as commercial space companies take flight, there's a new group of spaceflight participants. And one research institute plans to leverage this new sample of astronauts for more data on our health in space. We'll hear from researchers at the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, or TRISH, about these new studies and how their findings will help us get to places like Mars and also improve our health here on Earth. Understanding our bodies as we venture farther into space. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. As early as next month, a crew of four private astronauts is launching to the International Space Station for a roughly week-long mission in low Earth orbit. Chartered by private company Axiom, it won't just be a joyride for the crew. They'll be conducting critical science, including experiments on themselves. The investigations build upon previous private space mission investigations like that of the Inspiration4 crew. Here to talk more about those experiments is Dr. Emmanuel Yurketa, Chief Medical Officer at Trish. Um, we've got, you know, a private space mission launching soon, um, coming off the back of a few other successful private space missions, both in orbit and to the International Space Station. Um, what are we learning from these missions when it comes to uh, medical sciences? Um, to answer the question, first we need to understand what is the difference between uh, these civilians flying into space and what we have been used to for the last 60 plus years with uh, uh, professional government astronauts. And that has to do with the the, the screening that uh, the professional astronauts uh, have to go through before they get selected. So so you have the possibility to buy down a lot of risk by uh, being highly selective in who flies into space. And now with commercial spaceflight is almost uh, on, I would say almost the opposite, right? You have people who uh, want to go to space and, and the commercial spaceflight providers, they need to make them as healthy as possible. Number one, for them to, to be safe uh, in space and number two, for them to enjoy the experience. So um, one of the biggest things that we have learned is um, how, how diverse from, from a, a healthcare perspective these uh, spaceflight participants are. And I think this is going to be extremely useful, not only for uh, for the commercial uh, spaceflight providers, but also for, for government um, um, space agencies since we're planning to go back to the moon and eventually to Mars, we will we will start seeing some, uh, you know, uh, similar conditions in the future. You mentioned, you know, I'm thinking back to uh, when I wanted to apply to NASA as a kid. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, but there, it was very rigorous to become an astronaut. But, um, you know, with commercialization of space, there's more and more opportunities for regular people to get into space. Um so what are some things that these commercial space flight companies do look at before you leave the ground? Yeah, that is a great question. And the short answer is that there is no um, standard procedure, uh, you know, uh, among the, space, the commercial space flight providers to, to screen or select people. Each, each of them have their own guidelines and their own requirements. Some of them are more stringent than others. And, and that really depends on, on the, the vehicles and, and the, the type of missions, right, that they want to uh, to enter space. Some of them are, like you said, very short, three days orbital missions. They don't go to the space station. Uh, others, uh, they have to go through uh, probably more stringent screening because they have to, to spend some time uh, on the space station. 
and others where we are seeing the the highest throughput, which, which are the uh, suborbital flights, which only last you know um, 15, 20 minutes, and and uh, uh, you you really start seeing all all the all the possibilities here. But the short answer to your question is that there is no uh, uh, standardized approach to uh, to selecting or, or screening uh, spaceflight participants. Is the ultimate goal to to make it so that anybody can go? Yeah, I think that would be the ultimate goal, right? It's it's uh, it's the new economy. It, it's uh, you know uh, significantly expanding. Uh, we're seeing a lot of, of new vehicles. Uh, what uh, the government calls the low Earth orbit destinations, which you know the goal is to have multiple space stations so that you can. Uh, pick and choose where you want to go and, and what vehicle is going to take you up and, and bring you back. Um, so I think in order to to have a sustainable economy in low Earth orbit and even thinking uh, going back to the moon and, and to Mars eventually, you will need to have a capability to to fly uh, a lot of people, some of which have some, some medical conditions. Um, so really understanding and collecting um, these health data is, is extremely, extremely relevant for these uh, um, you know, plans. We've talked previously about this, and I, and I want to talk a little bit more about this as, as we've got these missions coming up, is collecting that medical data. Um, right. That's that's kind of your, your focus and, and, and what your organization, Trish, um, is is working on. What are some of the things that, that you have collected um, in, in these previous missions? I, I believe the last we talked about was, was Inspiration4, uh, but since then there's been the Axiom1, and now Axiom2 is, is on its way. What What's some of the medical data you are collecting from these participants? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Uh, what we want to collect is data that, number one, has the highest scientific value that is, uh, you know, um, um, could be operational, re- operationally relevant in, in, in the short term and, and, the, and the long term. Uh, and, and then on the other hand, we need to make sure that these um, uh, research projects are also easy to implement and do not require a lot of training and crew time because the spaceflight participants do not uh, spend, you know, years training, but rather months. So uh, from that perspective, you need to you need to make a, a list that you know will work for everybody. So um, I guess the number one is sensory motor adaptation, how your balance uh, changes in spaceflight, and it's really one of the first systems that that gets impacted from from being in space. Pretty much when you uh, stop the engine. In space, that when there's a micro, the main engine cut off. Uh, it, it's when the system gets impacted, uh, among others. But from the short term, that's that's probably one of the first ones. We also look at the physiologic adaptation, trying to understand how you know the heart rate and other other physiologic variables change and get impacted during spaceflight. The third one, which is I think very relevant uh, in general for spaceflight, but also for commercial spaceflight, is how the behavior uh, changes. What is the cognitive performance impact from being in space? And we also have the capability of collecting a biobank. We take uh, blood, saliva, urine, um, stool, and skin swabs, and we process them um, at Bayle College of Medicine, the Human Genome Sequencing Center, and then we also store those data sets. And all of these data that we collect um, uh, in the future, we will be able to uh, to release it to uh, um, uh, third-party investigators who have a specific hypothesis so that rather than having to wait years uh, to get this data from, from different flights, they would also ha- already have access uh, to the data to answer some specific questions. How do you go about doing that? And one, I want to ask this a couple of different ways. Um, if, if I'm a private spaceflight participant um, and I'm paying quite a bit of money to go to space, I don't think I'm going to want to collect my stool sample uh, or my urine or <laughs> or draw my own blood. Are, are you able to get buy-in uh, from these these private uh, participants that are going to space that say, hey, I want to do this while I'm up there because it sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And you need to make sure they understand the value uh, of, of uh, you know, participating in these studies and also that, that really once in a lifetime for most of them opportunity that from being in space and, and how impactful it could be to participate in these studies. And I think um, you were mentioning Inspiration4 when we talked uh, almost two years ago, which was the first all-civilian mission. And I think that uh, mission set the, the, the precedent for, 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 for later missions so that people are interested uh, in you know participating in these studies. And we have seen really a, a really great response from uh, pretty much all of the commercial spaceflight uh, participants engaging in this type of, of research. And, and like I was telling you, making sure that they understand the value and they get uh, some something back from from their uh, engagement in this type of research uh, is, is is of value to them. So uh, so far, it has been a, a really good good response in general. So they understand the value, but 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 as you mentioned, Emmanuel, that you know these are truncated missions. They're 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 shorter than a, a typical six month astronaut stay. But so is the training, right? I mean, it, it's a much shorter time training. So how are you giving these people? Um, the skills that they would need to make these data collections, drawing blood, safely extracting a stool or, or, or urine sample. What is that process like? Yeah, like I was telling you, you need to make sure that you, you, uh, you size, size the training and the, the requirements right for uh, the amount of, of, of training and, and experience that they have. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably with one hand, I can count the ones that have some type of, of scientific background or, or experience from the spaceflight. Uh, uh, participants community. So really making sure that your procedures are as easy as possible. Uh, they require the, 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 the smallest time of, of the shortest time of, of uh, crew training and that you have a reliable capability of doing this is, is the, the, I think the key to make this successful. Um, like you said, the drawing blood in space is not uh, an ideal thing to do. And, and uh, you know, it requires a lot of, I mean, even on earth, right? Like <laughs> that's why people go through three years of training and, and get certified uh, as phlebotomists. So um, what we what we are planning to use in, in space flight are some of the newest devices that do not require you to, to use a needle to get the blood, but rather similar to what we see on commercials on TV for the continuous glucose monitors that is just uh, some micro needles that you put on your, on your shoulder and you know you can collect some blood these are the type of, of capabilities that we're exploring that uh could give us you know the same capabilities without requiring uh number one training number number two uh you know having the um a, a certified phlebotomist and what is more challenging is that we in most of these missions we don't have the capability to process the samples in space right like we don't have a centrifuge we don't have a minus 80 degree freezer so we need to make sure that these capabilities give us give us the, the science that we need uh, given the constraints, both from from a, an infrastructure perspective and also from a, from a training perspective, and really, when you think what we will need to go back to the moon and, and eventually to Mars, these are the type of of, of requirements that we'll need to fulfill uh, to to achieve a successful mission. Do the do the short missions help in that regard, where you're able to get your hands on the samples much quicker and, and they don't have to be processed in space? Yeah, absolutely. That gives us the the flexibility that uh, you know you are in space, in actual space. You can test your technologies, uh, your capabilities, and it's it's almost like a proof of concept. And it's it's uh, you know you you de-risk these capabilities first on on um, missions that orbit the the Earth. Then your next step would be missions that go to the space station, right? That will be longer, and then eventually your your end goal is to to take this to to the moon, and and again in the future to Mars. So you have this this uh, really unique capability to. Um, uh, really fast, right? We're talking about in a year, you, you can have three of these missions um, from different durations and different requirements. So you can you can really move the 
the, the maturation of these these um, capabilities uh, fast. Uh, normally, this would take probably decades to to uh, uh, to mature. You mentioned some of the technology that that you're using in space to to make these collections, like the continuous glucose monitors that that are wearable. Um, this is kind of a chicken or the egg question here. You know, is it is the technology that's been developed on on Earth here being used in in this kind of space application, or or is it vice versa? Is the stuff that you're developing for these particular tests and collections, is it something that can be used down here on Earth, or is it a little bit of both? I think the answer is both. It's uh, all of the above. Uh, you know, with, with it recently, and I think the, during the pandemic, there were a lot of, of technology developed on Earth because we're all isolated. We couldn't go uh, to see the physician that we normally did. Uh, we didn't have access to going to a lab. So there were a lot of technology developed during COVID that, um, you know, again, given that the really unique environment, they they fit uh, the needs for spaceflight. And I think one of them is what I was mentioning, the, the capability to take blood, uh, you know, from your shoulder without having to uh, uh, to go with a phlebotomist. But then on the other hand, you know, spaceflight is also very unique. So things that we develop for space have also f- uh, complete applications on uh, terrestrially, um, especially on isolated communities or, or you know, uh, regions that do not have readily access to uh, to physicians, to healthcare, or you know, to a lab that 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 they would need to to, to send their samples. So I think it's it's um, um, it's an environment that keeps keeps feeding feeding the loop uh, and and both um, uh, you know um, help each other. And finally, before we let you go, um, is there anything in, in these upcoming missions that you're particularly excited about, um, a particular investigation that, that you can't wait to get your hands on, on the data once it's back? Yeah, it's always very exciting. Uh, you know, when, when, when you work uh, months to get paperwork done and, and uh, <laughs> getting everything ready for the mission and you see the, the rocket ship going into space, so it's, it's, it's always very exciting. But I would say that uh, one of the things that we want to do in, in this commercial spatial missions uh, probably... Uh, this year, hopefully, is the capability to to get uh, blood samples from space, which is something that that we're really looking forward to to have as a, as a new capability. So having these devices that I was describing, seeing them uh, collect the blood in space, is something that I'm really looking forward to seeing. That was Dr. Manuel Yurketa, Chief Medical Officer at Trish. Still to come, how this data fits into the big picture, and why NASA and the private space industry are so excited to get their hands on it. Are We There Yet is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. Until now, scientists have had a very small set of data about the effects of space on the human body. But now, organizations like the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, or TRISH, are able to get their hands on more data thanks to commercial space flight. Dr. Jen Fogarty is the chief science officer at Trish and says the more data scientists can get their hands on, the better prepared we'll be for a future in space if we want to go to places like the moon or Mars long term. Jen, I want to bring you in on a conversation now. Um, Dr. Ketta mentioned that, you know, one of the things that is a must for these um, participants is getting the buy-in and and for them knowing what this data is going to be used for. We spoke the last time you were on the show about building this data set of, of, you know, physiological markers of, of, of what happens to people in space. Remind us why this is so important and, and why your organization is making this data set. 
the most important part of this is what you touched on earlier with the diversity of the people going on commercial space flight compared to how we selected and maintained the health status of the astronauts. And so you'll get a full spectrum uh, of people, you know, very wealthy, healthy people buying these tickets. Um, but as we know, you know, as as you age, your body changes and, and disease starts to manifest in different ways at different rates. And um, so this data set is helping us understand what is surprisingly safe <laughs> to send to space, right? Because we just didn't have experience it before, um, whether it be type 2 diabetes or glaucoma or, you know, um, issues with your kidneys or liver. You know, these people live very healthy, robust lives. You kind of manage these conditions, but they wouldn't have put them in a position to ever be selected as government astronauts because we we just buy down the risk by eliminating the thing to begin with. You know, it's called an occupational health model. You literally engineer out the problem. You can know these things about people and you can choose other people, right? You have 18,000 people applying or more for, <laughs> for the, you know, the NASA astronaut corps. I think ESA, CSA have all had robust turnouts for, you know, single slots. Um, you know, there's a lot of other metrics added to make sure they're good, well-rounded, educated, you know, high-functioning people. But health is a major factor because having a health crisis while you're on a space station or on the space vehicle is just can be catastrophic, not only for the individual, but for the rest of the crew. Like things, you know, are exacerbated in extreme environments. Um, and you have to make hard choices about if you treat one person, you're going to use up the resources and then they're not there to treat someone later on if you're going on a long enough mission. So getting comfortable with sending people who are not you know, risk-free from a health perspective is incredibly important. Um, and as you were alluding to before, you know, with commercial space flight, the, the idea is yes, yes, they're going to fly. How can we do it safely? And part of it is characterizing what does safe mean anymore. So if someone has an indwelling insulin pump because they have type 1 diabetes, how is their insulin pump going to function in microgravity? You know, they put them right now, this has been done and published, the, they went through centrifuge training to see if you could disrupt the location and the, the flow metrics or the you know mechanisms of the pump itself. And it turned out that based on the profiles that they do at launch and landing, that, that things like insulin pumps, uh, def internal defibrillators, uh, cardiac pacemakers, all worked perfectly fine. Um, so that, that gives people a real sense of security that these people initially could go for short missions. Right. Time in some cases is not your friend. So starting out with a six month mission isn't very practical or smart. <laughs> you do the crawl, walk, run method. You know, you get experience, you get a couple of days, you do these um, low Earth orbit flights or maybe the destination flights to the International Space Station. But as uh, Emmanuel mentioned, going to the space station, even for commercial participants, really brings down another set of requirements, because as soon as you enter the space station, you now become a risk to that entity and the crew there. So the negotiation of that has been a little bit different. And, and the role we play is just, again, collecting data on people to ex to extend the information so you can we can share the knowledge about if people fly and um, we're measuring, we're doing physiological monitoring, we're doing biochemical monitoring, we're checking how the, on the molecular level how your body's you know dealing with the change and the, the extremeness of the experience. Is it taking somewhere down a bad path of health? You know, we have all these asymptomatic um, times in our lives where we're unaware our body's changing in the background. It's not until something overtly happens that you start to say, oh, I'm not, you know, you get a fever or, you know, you feel nauseous. You're like, well, now I'm sick. I'm, I'm expressing symptoms of sickness. But could we have known earlier 
that your body was going in that direction and been more proactive and preventive. So, you know, this idea of wearing um, very unobtrusive or non-invasive devices helps us not only characterize what is happening people through the experience, but then you connect it to outcomes. Were they successful, you know, at the mission? Did they feel well? When didn't they feel well? You kind of map it back to that that data that they don't intrinsically understand, right? They don't, it's like wearing your Fitbit or any other piece of hardware that you don't get a sense of, you know, you know, was what was my heart rate doing when I was sitting there reading a book versus what is my heart rate doing when I'm up walking around cleaning the house or when I'm exercising? But you can start to get better at gauging it and say, when is, you know, if I'm sitting there reading a book and I've got a heart rate of 120, maybe there's something wrong, <laughs> you know, that's more appropriate for when I'm out like hustling a walk or, you know, riding my bike. So unless it's a really good book. That's right? true, though. Like psychological <laughs> stress is a factor, right? Sympathetic nervous system is a thing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that, you know, the goal of of Trish is, is to kind of find that level of comfort of, of when you can, you know, who you can send up and, and, and kind of what things you need to look out for. And and all of the work that Emmanuel is doing is, is collecting this data to get to making that that call how close are you to to having a a significant amount of data that you can make that call yeah i think we're still in the early stages so so doing that getting data where you someone would feel comfortable we're actually able to assess risk more accurately um we're really like at an end of an end of 10 12 people you know over the past 18 months um some of the current flights are delayed with their launches so we're we're chomping at the bit to get more data so the more people that fly, the more frequently that missions happen, um, the more data we'll have to 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 not only characterize the risk, but characterize the uncertainty. Because we do lean back on the NASA data, well, not just NASA, but the international space flight data, including the Russians. I mean, there's a long history there. Not everything was collected every time, so you're dealing with some patchy patchy data sources, which which give us trouble. Those are the gaps that we try to make sure we fill. And we're, you know, our partner, the NASA Human Research Program. They're doing a parallel effort, and we're trying to make sure that we stay what are called harmonized. We don't do exactly the same thing, but we we collect equivalent measures so that we can continue to grow the evidence base together and move back and forth between the traditional government-sponsored spaceflight missions versus the less traditional commercial spaceflight missions. And hopefully that'll get us there. We'll, we'll be able to accelerate the process you're describing. And also, you know, we had been chatting about... You know, some of the things that there are some assumptions with with spaceflight and, and physiological risks um, that you're hoping that some of this data will will put to rest, like, you know, that spaceflight ages you faster. Right. It, it, that's that's not the case. Right. And, and and you're hoping this data will will put that to bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want people to remember that that statement that's used a lot, that it's like accelerated aging or is I, I hear different you know verbs being used. But when someone says spaceflight is accelerated aging. I was like, actually, that's a hypothesis that is not being tested very well. No one's actually defining it and saying, well, what is biological aging? And if we say that that's taking you to a bad place health-wise because you have more disease manifesting as you're older. So something in your body is not not performing in a way when you're older compared to when you're young. And that's true. I mean, that's observationally, you know, I think we can agree with that in general. But the idea is not, you're not destined for that. Like you can make changes, you can do things, you know, choices about your lifestyle and how you manage your body that don't always take you in that direction. Our knowledge of how to tune the human body to be more successful as we age is 
exploding right now, like all the way down from molecular level. You're getting supplements, you know, that are coming out of, you know, the, some of the most respected schools in the world and laboratories are coming out with stuff before they go. Like it's not even being treated as a drug, so it's not going FDA. But, you know, there's exciting work going on with how to tune the human body. But I think, you know, in spaceflight, just superficially, they're like, well, in aging, you lose lean body mass, you know, you lose muscle mass, you lose bone density. So spaceflight is like aging. The problem with that statement is that the human body is way more complex than the superficial observation. They lose bone mineral density in a very particular area of their body, not all over. And actually, while the body's losing bone in one area because we're no longer loading it with gravity, it's gaining bone in another area where because they're using their upper body so much more. So we the body is like adapting to an environment. It's not aging. <laughs> but the the human body, Brandon, is the most energy efficient machine known known in the universe, right? It has so many intricate and elegant sensors at a cellular and tissue level. It's constantly responding to whether you're using it or not. And it stops investing in tissue that you're no longer using because it wants to put it somewhere else. So in spaceflight, we really have an adaptive process. The question becomes, when you move someone from Earth to microgravity, it is a very disruptive experience. You know, people don't feel well for a couple of days. There's a lot of nausea and dizziness and kind of just an acclimation to no longer having gravity pull on your body. Over days, weeks, months, that's where the tissues changes because your body says, oh, you're no longer doing this. I'm not, you know, it's just like detraining. You know, you could be on an exercise training regimen. You can do a race or, you know, a triathlon or whatever your choice are. And then if you stop working out, your body starts to get rid of all that investment you made. But it takes time. Same thing happening in spaceflight. Um, but what's remarkable, even about all the astronauts we've studied that have done longer duration spaceflight, it's co almost completely reversible. So as long as the body maintains that kind of cellular plasticity where it can reinvest, I don't think that really represents the aging model. Because biologically, the point would be at some point your cells are incapable. They become like what is called senescent and are no longer capable of being as functional as they were previously. For the astronauts that have experienced spaceflight, um, th there's some details there that are going to be argued by a lot of discipline experts because there's very nuanced elements, particularly in the bone community. But overall, you can make a complete recovery, which means you aren't aged, you just adapted, and then you readapt to being on Earth. So I think we have to respect the fact that the body is dynamic, um, and can respond to different environments. Where we have to be kind of cautious about the interpretation is that at some point you want to take someone who's adapted to microgravity and bring them back to gravity, um, particularly in the Mars scenario, where in Earth, when we bring them back to 1G, someone's there to greet them and help them get out of the capsule or off the spaceflight vehicle and help them, you know, be safe about the process. When you want someone to Mars who's now adapted for microgravity and they land in three-eighths gravity and there's no greeting committee, how are we going to handle that? How do we prepare the crew to not only be adapted for microgravity, but de -adapt be adapted for the partial gravity? And that's the challenge of the research world of trying to enable that mission. But right now, I think we need to get smarter and I think we need to be uh, more precise with our language. I, I think it's been a little sloppy over the years, <laughs> for sure. That was Dr. Jen Fogarty. She's the chief science officer at Trish. We'll have more coverage of the private spaceflight mission in the coming weeks, including an interview with AX2 pilot John Schaffner. But for now, that's going to do it for this episode. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We've got more space news coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are we there yet? Is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden Creston. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>